Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we sit down with everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. So before we get kicked off on this one, just wanted to do my normal announcements. If you want to support the show, you can head over to Patreon, and the link will be in the description. You can support the show. Big thanks to everybody who already does. I really appreciate it. It helps out a lot. And uh, I've been trying out sort of the new format with the sailing stories. So at the uh, the first half of this, we're going to be talking about all sorts of safety gear because the story that I tell is the story of Stephen Callahan spending 76 days in a life raft. So a lot of lessons to take from his book. I know I've taken quite a few. And it's definitely worth worth uh, a read if you haven't read it. The book is Adrift, written by Stephen Callahan, who is uh, oh, just an epic example of uh, human endurance in, in the face of absolute crazy danger. So we'll get into that for the second half, but I figure, yeah, it might be a, a good chance to uh, go over some of the safety gear that I keep on Sparrow and why I have what I have and sort of what I do. And disclaimer, obviously, I'm not an expert when it comes to all this sort of stuff. And there's probably a few things that I missed. And if I do and, and any of the listeners have, I don't know, top tips or, or things that they uh, found really useful, shoot me an email. You can head over to sailingintooblivion.com and uh, email me directly. And like most people... <laughs> Uh, it's pretty funny when I get an email, I usually either comment on it on the podcast or I email them right back. And, and the reaction I always get is, holy cow, I can't believe you actually did that. That's awesome, man. I appreciate it. Cause I, I think in a lot of respects, I know I've emailed quite a few podcasts and things like that. And, uh, you never get anything back from them. And, uh, I don't know. So it's sort of like a fool's errand, but no, not with this one, at least, uh, at least not yet. So uh, but before we get in, as I always say, if you want to support the podcast, please do. We're over on Patreon. You can uh, The link will be in the description. And uh, I really appreciate all of my Patreon family who is helping keep this show going and uh, hopefully going to get me into some new equipment, new computer, new everything. Oh, it'd be so nice. So without further ado, safety gear. It's probably one of the most important things uh, to really put some time, effort, and also some money into when you're, when you're on a boat. And there's, there's really different aspects to it as far as, you know, where you're sailing and what you're doing. I think it comes into play with the type of gear that you get, things like your life raft and such. If you're out day sailing in the Chesapeake or, or, you know, not out there crossing oceans. Obviously, your gear is going to be a little bit different, but we'll we'll sort of get into that uh, a little later. But the the standard basic safety stuff aboard most boats or all boats, I suppose, and Mighty Sparrow included. You know, obviously the the big ones, life jackets. You know, uh, if you've seen any of my videos. I never seen me wearing a life jacket and, uh, you know, I have my reasons for that, which I've gone into plenty of times, so we don't need to go into that anymore, but having them on board, absolutely crucial. Uh, if I was ever off the coast and something happened and the boat started to sink, you better believe I'd sure hope to have a life jacket I could grab, uh, quickly and easily. So you always want to have those on board as well as the safety harness and the jack lines because things can get pretty out of hand pretty quickly. And if you're all set up on a boat to be able to clip in when you're either in the cockpit or if you have to go forward, you want to make sure you can do that. You, uh, If you don't feel comfortable and, and the conditions have that that you're going through are, are that rough and that awful, you know, picture breaking waves crashing over the over the deck of the boat, you know, if you think you can hold on while green water is slamming into you, uh, you're absolutely wrong. So it's uh, it's definitely really important to make sure that 
if if it's needed, you can clip right on and have that hard point. Even though you don't want to wholeheartedly trust it with your life, it's a nice added bonus. And a lot of this stuff is is just that. It's it's added protection. You know, the the number one thing is making good choices and taking your time and making good decisions. But if you can add a little extra safety in there, that's always always the best option to go with. Uh, down below, for sure, life uh, or not life rats, um, fire extinguishers are a huge thing. Mighty Sparrow is 32 feet long. I have three fire extinguishers on this boat. One right next to the access to the engine room, uh, which I can actually I can open a small hatch to the engine room, fit one fire extinguisher in there, and just spray it without actually having to open the whole thing, which I think is is a pretty decent thing to have. I've I sort of got that idea from some of the motor yachts that I had worked on way back in the day, and they had like a fire extinguishing system where instead of actually having to go into the engine room you just pull the tab and the fire extinguishers are already mounted and can pretty much without opening the engine room you can extinguish all the stuff that's going on because I mean that's where all the fuel is and the heat from running the engine and all that sort of stuff but I have them in the cabin and then I have them up in the forward four peak Uh, so you just sort of have them so you can access them and you make sure that you either get them tested or checked or you just replace them. If they've been sitting there for five years, you probably want to replace it. Make sure you make sure you have something something that you know is going to actually work. Uh, but they're just basic chemical ones, so it uh, puts out that white fog and, and all that. And, uh, yeah, you want to make sure you have those on the boat. Absolutely. The other one, which... I think sometimes doesn't really get considered as a safety, a piece of safety equipment, but that's headlamps. Um, I have, I don't know how many, I think I have like five headlamps on this boat uh, because you never know when you're going to sort of lose power or lose the ability for your deck lights or something like that. And I don't know. It's just one of those things where I've, I've actually been up on deck. I can remember a time uh, I was up there reefing and, I think it was, it must have been way down in the Southern Ocean because I had the winter hat on and I tipped my head back and the headlamp flunk, flew right over, over the side and into the water and sank. And yeah, I mean, if, if I only had one on board, I, I would have been pretty out of luck for the next few months on that trip. And uh, luckily I have plenty because nowadays they're pretty cheap. You can order a bunch of them and uh, that way you've definitely got those spares. The only other thing sort of in, in the general realm that I, I sort of think of is the the whole survival suit uh, sort of thing. And that, I don't have one of those on board Sparrow. I've seen a lot of boats. Most of the lobster boats have them. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I suppose that would be a pretty epic thing to have, especially if you ended up being submerged in the ocean, not in a life raft. Uh, you know, obviously you'd need some sort of personal EPIRB or something like that. But when I think about it, if you, if you were in cold water, cold weather, even if you were in the life raft, if you had one of these survival suits, that would be a fantastic thing to be able to hop in just to fight off hypothermia, the wetness, all that sort of stuff. So if you got the means for it, picking one of those up and having it stashed either in your grab bag or just on board somewhere easy to access, then I would say that's, that's probably a pretty crucial piece of kit to have. But, uh, yeah, those are sort of the, the, the basic general ones. Uh, and then when you get into sort of the life raft stuff, this is where it gets, there's, there's so many variations that you can go with. And I know before I went on the big trip around the world, I had a six-man life raft that was completely, like, offshore. Um, I think it had two weeks' worth of rations in it. Uh, I want to say it had six or nine liters of water in it. All sorts of different different things came in the kit. Now, the only drawback was that the whole thing weighed about 90 pounds, so it was pretty difficult to move around the deck. But I had actually taken that sort of uh, route because of Stephen Callahan's book. It, it was uh, 
it made a lot of sense. He's, you know, he talked about, have you ever gotten in a four man life raft? And, uh, I have never actually been in one. I've been in, I think like 12 person ones when I was doing training stuff. And even those seem pretty small. So I don't know. It, it was one of those things where I figured that was probably going to be one of my best chances if something went really, really pear-shaped out there and I ended up in the life raft, that would be the time where I would be stuck in it for an extended period, uh, especially in the Southern Ocean. So I figured, hey, might as well go with something big and sort of don't have to worry too much about it after that. But nowadays, since I've replaced that one, I just have a four-man life raft and, uh, and I've upped the ante on my grab bag. And so it's, it's one of those things where I've sort of traded things off. So instead of just one huge, gigantic thing, now I have two things that I have to sort of grab and get ready. But there's no perfect one solution for any boat. Every boat's going to be different. Some, some boats are going to actually have more than just one person on them. Uh, so you do have to take those things into consideration. But yeah, when you're purchasing a life raft, you can go into it and um, you can spend thousands of dollars to get the highest tech, most upgraded, all the bells and whistles sort of thing. Uh, or you can just get a general run-of-the-mill life raft that basically just has the life raft. It might have a couple other little items in it, but it's not going to have food. It's not going to have water. And if that's the case, you just got to make sure that you have very quick access to all those things. Because when you get in that life raft, that's it. And once that boat is gone, you pretty much just have whatever you took into that life raft. And if, if it just so happens that you're you didn't get the EPIRB off or no one knows and the chances of you getting spotted out there are, are pretty slim. So you're this teeny, teeny little orange dot or green dot or red dot, whatever color it is out on the ocean. And, um, believe you me, sometimes I've had thousand foot ships, uh, sneak right up on me without even noticing. So you got to take that into consideration for sure. But Uh, So with the, you know, life raft, one of the things I will say on that, I typically in fair weather on small trips up and down the coast, I typically have it stored amidships uh, up forward just so I have room in the cockpit. But if I do have a bad weather forecast coming or I'm heading into places like the Southern Ocean um, or in the North Atlantic and I expect heavy weather, I bring that back and I lash it down in the cockpit. Now, it's easy to untie or to cut with a knife and free it up, uh, but it's one of those things where you're going to be launching that life raft from the cockpit, or at least that's where you're going to want to. And the other thing is that a big, giant breaking wave could rip those mounts right off, and it happens all the time. Life rafts can get disappeared really quick by the ocean, and... The cockpit, at least in the footwell, uh, it's pretty darn secure in there, and it would take it would take a pretty massive uh, pooping from a wave to uh, to have that actually get ripped out of the cockpit footwell. Uh, at least that's my thinking. I've never had it happen. So a lot of this stuff, again, and that's that's probably a good note to say, is a, a lot of this stuff is just theory at this point, and hopefully it stays that way for the rest of my sailing days. Uh, but with the, before we get into the grab bag, which is sort of, I think the more, most interesting part, because that's where everybody sort of gets to, I don't know, you you sort of make that one up yourself and that's, that's, that's where you do your own signature stuff. Uh, but obviously the other big one that you're going to have on board and I keep mine with my grab bag is the EPIRB and that's the uh, emergency position indicating radio beacon and I have a 406 so I know that that one goes you fire it off goes to the satellites goes to the coast guard and they get an update they know what boat it is and they know it's me and they know where I am and that's uh, the absolute crucial data with Steven's story it's back in the 80s, and uh, he has a different type, an earlier version, which just broadcasted essentially a distress signal to any passing airplanes. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, luckily those things have been updated, 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 and they're, 
they're better than ever. So um, I keep that one right with my grab bag. And my grab bag is located right amidships. It's I have it lashed up onto a uh, sort of on top of this cabinet, very easy access. And it's actually held up there with bungee that has sort of a slip knot in the end. So I've actually tested it where how fast I can get that thing down. And it's literally about three seconds. You pull the tab, the bungee goes boing, boing, boing. And then I can grab the grab bag and head right into the cockpit, which is what you want. I mean, literally it can be 15 seconds and your boat is flooded. And you got to think, you know, you might, you might be asleep and the, the, the cabin of the boat might be half filled with water and you're sloshing through the water just to get to the grab bag. So you want it to be absolutely super easy to get and in an open area. Think about all this water comes in, all the cushions, things like that, books, everything gets dislodged. And you've got your grab bag in some cabinet that is now covered up with a whole bunch of heavy objects. And now you can't get into it. So I think making sure that your your grab bag is is absolutely accessible and as high up as possible is is definitely in my book I think that's a uh, a good idea and it seems to be seems to be something that uh, I'd be able to get to in mere seconds. So I've got the EPIRB on the grab bag. Some of the other stuff I keep all my flares and I have a multitude of flares. I I have everything from one of those little flare guns with the Little rockets uh, to actual full-on parachute flares, the big ones, and handheld ones. I mean, all it's crazy. Smoke, uh, smoke signals. The the big green dye that goes in the water. Basically, like the full offshore accoutrement as far as signaling signaling uh, apparatus. And I actually have kept most of the expired ones as well. Because even though you have to make sure that you have the updated ones, which I do, it's always, you know, chances are the old ones are going to work as well. Uh, they just have to, you know, they have to put an expiration date on them. But, hey, they might come in handy. You never know. So uh, I just hold on to them, and that, that gives me extra. But I think all said and told, I must have probably around 20 flares total, uh, including the old ones. But as far as the new stuff goes... I think it's like six or eight total um, between the handhelds and the rockets and, and all that. So definitely keep keeping all those flares right in there, the smoke signals. Um, some of the other stuff that, that I keep in my grab bag is a little bit of water. Uh, I have about a gallon of water in there. And on Sparrow, there's always, when I'm out at sea, a five-gallon jug, a jerry can of water. And that one is also pretty easy to access. So I know that if it comes time to it, you know, and it, it is adding to the number of things that I need to take. But I also, you know, if you put five gallons, so essentially 40 pounds of water into your grab bag, that that all of a sudden becomes a pretty heavy, crazy object. So if I can, I get it all up there. Um, but I also have a water maker in the grab bag as well. It's just one of those catadine. It's the, the pump one that I've always had on the bow, even, yes, yes, the one that broke during the trip around the world. But it's still, I've got the new one. It's worked really well over the last two trips, and uh, so it's it's definitely a crucial part of my grab bag. Uh, so I have the ability to, 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 you know, make some water. And then I have food in there, mostly just MREs, and then uh, some Mountain House dehydrated stuff, which... You know, I kind of went back and forth on that because you have to have water to actually use it. If you eat it dry, it's going to dry you right up. But uh, I figure since I can make water and all that sort of stuff, uh, I do that. But I also, with the MREs, they're just these little packets of food. I also have about 50 of the uh, heating elements. And I didn't really put those in there for... The heating of the food. I put those in there for the heating of me um, in case it's really cold and I'm in a, a, a cold area when I end up in that raft. And they last, they'll stay warm for 20 minutes or, or so. Really, really hot actually. But I've, I remember in the Southern Ocean cooking up, you know, ravioli or spaghetti or whatever in the MREs and I would tuck that into 
the pockets of my foul weather gear and that it, it was sort of like kept me warm nice and uh, right in the core and everything so I kept those and I figure if it's if it comes down to one of those times where your fingers are starting to go numb or who even knows even getting down to the frostbite uh, depending on where you are maybe you can use those to sort of salvage that and not lose not lose any digits um some other stuff uh fishing gear i just have some line and a whole bunch of hooks i don't really have lures uh but i have a whole sort of setup so that i could sit there and fish um that one's a tricky one and and as we get into the story for from from a drift it he goes full on and he has all the equipment he needs but it also almost uh ends his his little voyage as well so I don't know. I just go with the fishing hooks in the in the line and a decent amount of them, so that if I lose a few, I still have some more. Uh, toiletries and sunscreen. This is something I sort of thought of, and I figured, you know, if I if I ended up out there for like a month, how nice it would be to be able to have just a little bit of soap, uh, have toothpaste and a toothbrush. Because, you know, you think about it, your boat's sinking. The last thing you're going is like, oh, well, hmm, what should I bring? No, you're, you're in an absolute rush. So things like sunscreen, toothpaste, uh, all that is, is probably going to be pretty nice to have if you're stuck in that raft for a couple of weeks even. You know, just think about it. if you don't have any of that and you're just getting grimier and grosser and your hygiene starts to decline, that sometimes can really affect your health and... Uh, if you can combat that just by throwing a tube in there, hey, go for it. Why not? Um, sunglasses, I just keep an old pair in there just in case because I couldn't even imagine. You know, you're stuck out there on the sea and the brightness of the day and you don't have any sunglasses because, again, it's not an event you get to, to pack for uh, at the time that it happens. You've got to pack for this before you even leave on the voyage and I hope it doesn't happen, but if it does, you want to make sure you're ready. Uh, and then... First aid kit. That's where I keep all of them. Um, it's a little bit of a pain to get to when I'm just sailing out there if I cut myself or need need something out of there. But if the boat's floating and everything's all good, that's where they are. I can get to them and, you know, it's a little pain. But at least if, if they're there and I keep them there, if that emergency situation uh, comes up, they're already in there. I don't have to scramble around and grab little things that I've taken out of my grab bag. I want that thing 100% ready to go. I also keep a neck brace inside of the grab bag, and that's that's more of a personal thing, I suppose, because I years and years ago, I fell asleep in the cockpit. I think I was sailing from Dominica or St. Lucia back to the BVI, and I fell asleep in the cockpit sitting up and dropped my head down. And when I woke up, my neck hurt so bad. And for literally years, I had to be real careful. If I slept incorrectly on it, uh, I'd wake up and it would, you know, oh, it was absolutely the worst. And I've always thought about that being on a boat. If you really tweaked your neck pretty bad, um, life can be completely miserable and it can be hard to do anything and and because you're on a boat and you're sailing you have to keep doing stuff so a neck brace they're pretty easy they're pretty light and you can just throw one in there and that definitely will help i've worn it before just to uh just to sort of test it out and see what it would be like to move around the boat and you look ridiculous but as a solo sailor obviously i don't care too much about that uh the other one uh now these these last ones are, are sort of, uh, I guess, my signature, um, really, when it comes down to this. One is I have a small little clamp, you know, like a wood clamp that you, if you're sawing wood or something like that, just a little, it's got a little screw handle and it clamps something and holds it together. I've got that and I've got two six-inch pieces of wood. Tiny, light, no big deal. Uh, but that actually, again, came from reading Stephen's book adrift because he gets into a situation where the life raft pops and trying to fix that stuff and secure those leaks in that salty environment that's moving and all that sort of stuff is not easy 
And if you had a, a nice little three inch gash, if you've got a clamp and you got two big pieces of wood there, you might be able to uh, seal it, clamp it, and uh, fix the issue much easier than what he ends up doing, which is having to MacGyver his way through it. Uh, so I have that, and that's you know just a little little side thing. This one I think is is absolutely crucial, and I I think really that these should be in every life raft. Um, not only the, in the grab bag, but in, in the life raft. And that's a laser pointer because I, you know, I've always thought that if, if a, uh, a ship is passing you by, you know, they may not see a flare. Uh, but if you shine a laser pointer up on that bridge from even like a mile away, it's going to blow that thing up. And it's something, you know, I mean, they, I don't know. It's just, I feel like, and again, never been able to test it, but I feel like you'd be able to get somebody's attention pretty quickly. And because you can be so precise with it, I think of it as a futuristic version of the old reflector mirrors that uh, used to have in survival kits. So that one I think is a, a pretty good one. And I, I used to do the stargazing lectures, so I use that same one. So it's a pretty powerful laser pointer, but I suppose anyone would do. Uh, and then... These others are kind of uh, the sat phone. I always sort of keep that in the grab bag. So when I have to do weather downloads and things like that, I have to pull it out, which is kind of a pain. But again, in the event, uh, I would love to be able to call somebody if for whatever reason the EPIRB didn't work or, you know, a million things could happen. It sure would be nice to call somebody and say, hey, uh, I'm in a life raft and sat phones also at least the one I have, the Iridium gives you your Latin long so you could tell them your position and all that sort of stuff. So having that and keeping it fully charged is is definitely definitely a nice little thing to have in the old grab bag. And then the other one, and this is sort of the last one that I have, is obviously I keep a VHF radio that's fully charged in there, just an L, not an L cheapo, but just a standard Horizon one. And then I also have a World Band radio. And batteries for all these, obviously. The World Band Radio is sort of a throwback to Joe versus the Volcano. Uh, I know it's a bit odd to say, but when their ship goes down in the Pacific and he ends up floating around on his luggage, he he opens up his luggage and he's got this, he'd gone to Sharper Image or something like that. Remember those old stores? And had the all these fancy little gizmo doohickeys, but he had a, a world band radio and there's all these scenes of him sort of messing around with all this stuff, but he's got music playing. And I think that just for a morale boost, being able to tune in a little music or maybe get the news or something like that. If you were out there adrift, uh, I don't know, maybe it would be a, a total game changer to be able to hear something, hear other people's voices, maybe just a motivator to not give up, uh, just keep going and going and going. So I don't know. Those are some of the, the things in the grab bag. There might be a few more. Um, I do have uh, a couple little bits of clothing, like the uh, they make the long sleeve shirts that have UV protection in them. I have one of those on in there, and that, that definitely, I, I figure... If you're stuck out there for months, you're going to run out of that sunscreen, and uh, then at least you've got something that you're not going to run out of. But that's sort of my grab bag. Those are some of the safety equipment, uh, things that I have aboard Mighty Sparrow whenever I set sail, whether it's up and down the coast or out across the Atlantic or anywhere in the world, really. So that's what I try and try and bring, and I'm sure there's probably something I'm forgetting, but, uh, you know... Who knows? What can you do? Uh, but yeah, if I if anybody has any other top tips or things like that, please hit me up because I'd I'd love to uh, expand on that that little system that I have. And you never know some somebody might say something and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't even think of that. So in any event, that is sort of the breakdown of what I've got on Mighty Sparrow and why. And it really is. It's all about it's all about safety and having having your, your best chance of survival when things go horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, but at, from that, let's go ahead and jump in, and we're going to get into the, the story of Stephen Callahan. So thanks for listening, and here we go.
Welcome to Sailing Stories. I'm your host, Jerome Rand, and today we are getting into a tragic, like worst nightmare scenario for me when it comes to being out at sea, and that is to have your boat sink and you end up in a life raft. So today we're going over the story of Stephen Callahan. So back in the 1980s, precisely 1981, Stephen Callahan, who had quite a bit of experience in boat building and sailing and all this sort of stuff, ended up building himself a 22-foot wooden sloop. So that's one mast, two sails, and nice hearty little vessel in hopes of crossing the Atlantic Ocean from the East Coast, from Maine, and he wanted to go over to France and join in a race that goes back from France to the Caribbean called the Mini Transat. And this is sort of the early days of that racing. A lot of guys will actually, or gals, will use that race as a stepping stone to start sailing and racing around the world on bigger boats. But this is the tiny sort of Grand Prix sort of stuff. And he took somebody with him on a couple of voyages to test it out. Uh, he did the one-two back to Bermuda and all that sort of stuff. And then he set sail and he makes it to France. Pretty uneventful trip. The boat does well. The boat's name is Solo. And he gets over to France and it's late in the year. Really, really ugly weather in the Bay of Biscay. And it's just looking like they're going to start this race in a gale. Like it's it's going to be pretty ugly. And... They end up starting the race. Uh, about half of the fleet doesn't even make it. He ends up hitting something and doing some damage to the boat and then having to pull into Portugal and do repairs and kind of bum his way around down there. He ends up meeting some other people, and instead of sort of just jetting straight across to the Caribbean, he decides we'll go and do some cruising down the coast, see some places, you know, kind of hit the mellow vibe. He's a sailor after all. And sometimes if things don't go according to plan, you know, you just go where the breeze takes you. That's one of the really nice things about sailing, I think. And in any event, after a few weeks go by, and uh, I think actually two months, he ends up back on the boat by himself, and he's down in the Canary Islands, and he decides, well, you know what? I'm still going to sail out of here. I'm going to sail. I'm going to go for Antigua, and that's pretty much a pretty common route. You know, they, they almost describe it as like a milk run because you're pretty much in the trades. It's not really stormy conditions out there typically. And yeah, it's, it should be a pretty uneventful trip compared, honestly, from going from Maine all the way across to France. Now that's a pretty risky trip. You get a lot of low pressure systems that come off of the East Coast and just blast their way across building, building, building. You get caught in one of those and you're going to remember it for a long time. In any event, so he sets up and he's ready to go. And the first like week or so of sailing by himself it's fantastic. He's having a great time, sunsets, nice breezes, nothing crazy. But he is in an area where the winds can whip up pretty good. And they call them the Portuguese trades, or at least that's what I've heard before. And sometimes they can actually blow really good. And that's exactly what happens. So after about a week, the winds start to crank way up. Nothing he can't handle, waves 10 to 15 feet. Now on a 21-foot boat, that's a lot. That's pretty scary. You're looking up from just a few feet above the water. Those waves look tremendous, but Solo's doing great. Steven's doing great. It's a little rocky and rolly. He's a little annoyed by it, to tell you the truth, but in any event, it's still, it's sailing. Usually they come, they go, and then you get back to normal sailing. And one night, after about, I think it's two weeks on the boat, he goes down, uh, it's still blowing pretty good out there. The waves are still breaking, but the boat, again, sailing itself away. And uh, he lays down in his bunk, and just a few minutes later, bang, a huge crash, and then all of a sudden, water rushing in everywhere. He hops up. He can't even figure out where it's. It's dark. The, the boat basically is like filling with water faster than he can even figure out where it's coming from. Still doesn't really know, but he knows this is the ship is going down. So he goes up and he grabs his little uh, life raft. Luckily, that's still there. It's in a big canister, throws it over the side of the boat. The life raft inflates and it's right there. It's tied off and he's got a couple little things that he throws in and then he hops in the life raft. That's pretty much what you want to do because sometimes these boats can just 
fill with water and sink in 15 seconds. And so you have to sort of be ready. Normally, the protocol is to tie off the lifeline uh, or the life raft to the back of the boat and wait until it actually is really going under. Because if that boat, sometimes they like to just sit right at the waterline. They're almost submerged, but not really. Because you always want to stay with that boat until the very last second. They have this sort of saying in, in the offshore world that you want to be stepping up into your life raft. And he was in that mindset. And he was prepared. His, his life raft was a six-person, even though it was just for him, which actually led me to have a six-person life raft on Sparrow when I did the trip around the world. So thank you to Steven. Tip the hat. I never had to use mine, though. In any event, so he's in there, and he's hanging off of this. He has one line tied off, and he's sort of hanging there, and debris and stuff is sort of coming off of the boat, and he's able to, like, pick it up and throw it in the life raft because at that point, anything that comes off of that boat, you just grab it. You just grab it, and if you don't need it, you don't need it, but you never know down the line because you don't know how long you're going to be in that situation. And he's just sort of thinking, okay, uh, I got to get back on this boat because I got to go grab some more stuff. Grabs the uh, emergency grab bag, and I think he got a little bit of water, maybe a couple bags of some food, stuff like that. Not much, and he ends up hopping back into the life raft, and then all of a sudden he's sort of there and he's sitting and he's waiting. And again, the boat still hasn't gone all the way down, and he's sort of looking at it and he's plotting and planning out his next steps because it's dark out. But if the boat can survive until uh, until it's actually light, he's got a pretty good chance of hopping on board. He's got a 10-gallon jug of water. He's got a bunch of cans of food. He knows exactly where they are. So he's coming up with a game plan to be able to hop on board and grab all that stuff. The only problem is the whole time there's still breaking waves that are coming over and essentially he's sitting there and every time one of these breaking waves comes, it hits that life raft and it's just stressing it and it's like making these terrible noises and the last thing you want to do is stress that that inflatable ring because if it pops, then you are really out of luck and eventually the line that he has tied off to the boat comes untied. And now he's floating away and he sees his boat and the boat is getting further and further in the distance. The lights are like flickering on and off and then it sort of disappears. And therein lies one of my biggest nightmares. If I ever have to think about something that would be absolutely terrifying, that it's just worst case scenario in my mind you could ever have on a boat. I believe truly that it's actually worse than going down with the ship because now all of a sudden you are on this raft and it's inflated. It has the ability to just pop at any moment, even though they're pretty sturdy, but it's the fact that you are now only above the water by a thin skin of rubber. That's what terrifies me. And we'll figure out why that scares me so much as we go through this story. So he's got a pretty decent amount of stuff aboard this life raft. And it, it comes with its own little thing of, you know, like six or ten pints of water. In his emergency grab bag, he's got fishing stuff. He has a spear gun. He's got some food. He's got paper, pencils. He's got tons of flares, handheld flares, rocket flares. So he's, he's pretty well equipped as far as if you were stuck in a life raft. That's you want to have all the stuff that he's got. The only thing he wishes he had more of would be water and more food. But it does come equipped with three solar stills. And these are basically these little inflatable jobs that you put in the water and they let a little salt water in. It's got sort of a nice shield on top. And as it evaporates the salt water, it strains out the salt and now you've got fresh water. So he's basically drifting. He's about five, six, seven hundred miles off the coast of Africa. The way the oceans and the winds work in that area is everything is moving back towards the Caribbean. So he's pretty well versed in disaster stories, survival stories, sailing stories, and he has a, a pretty good head on his shoulders when it comes to, you know, what's going to happen here. If he figures out how fast he's going and he figures, well, okay, if I got to drift all the way to the Caribbean, 
then it's probably going to take me multiple months. But I'm probably going to get picked up because I have all these flares. When ships go by, all I have to do is make it to the shipping lanes. He's also got an EPIRB, which is an emergency position indicating radio beacon. So it's an old school one where you fire it off if you see a plane because the planes pick up that distress signal. They can report it, and then the Coast Guard and whatever can send any vessels in the area to rescue you. But you have to be able to see an airplane. Aboard Sparrow, nowadays, we've got more advanced EPIRBs that actually just go straight to the satellite, right to the Coast Guard, gives you my position, my distress signal, and then they know I'm in trouble no matter where I am. If you're in the Southern Ocean, you can blast your EPIRB off all day. It's going to be probably a week to 10 days at the earliest that somebody's going to come get you. But this is the North Atlantic, and there's a lot of shipping, and chances are it's going to get picked up. Again, this is 40 years ago, so things were a little bit different, but still, the odds are that you're going to get picked up. Days turn into weeks, turn into a month, and still no pickup. He's sighted multiple ships. He's fired plenty of flares day and at night. Still, ships just pass right by him, and it's it's sort of one of those things where he realizes that Ships aren't really going to just spot him because even he has trouble spotting the ships. Some of these things are like 800 feet long and 100 feet high, and he doesn't even see them until they're real close. So how's his little orange life raft going to be spotted by, you know, somebody who's up on the bridge probably reading a magazine or something like that, glancing every once in a while out there. So he's in a pretty bad position as far as, actually getting rescued just by chance somebody comes and and sees him but the real problem and the real terror when i think about it and when i read his book is essentially it takes only about a week before the fish that start schooling underneath his little raft because out on the ocean if you are an object that's just floating around you start to attract the little things little barnacles little tiny fish, planktons, all that sort of stuff sort of collects around you because you're this like shady, weird thing that's in the ocean that's pretty much empty everywhere. And then the bigger fish come to feed on the little fish. And then the bigger fish come to feed on the big fish. And then the sharks come and you get my point. So underneath his boat are mostly uh, smaller fish, trigger fish and Dorado, which sometimes can get big, but they actually start sort of It feels like they're punching from the bottom of his life raft. So you have to imagine you're sitting in this raft at night. You can't see anything. The ocean's out there. You don't know if the inflatable's going to keep hanging on. You've got all these doubts in your mind. You don't have a ton of water. You don't have a ton of food. And all of a sudden, underneath this raft, thump, 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 thump. And I, I literally would go insane. I don't think I could handle it uh, mentally. I think I would become so paranoid and terrified. My hat's off to Steven because he, he just guts it up. Cut to two weeks on the raft is when the first of the sharks show up. So now he's contending with actual eating machines that could easily destroy his life raft with just one bite all they have to do is come up bonk pop it and now he's in the water and he is getting eaten alive by these sharks so you can see why this would be pretty much my biggest nightmare if i ever went down out there the thought of being in a life raft and slowly getting picked apart is is absolutely wow i'm just imagining it right now and it's terrifying like i couldn't I don't even know if I'm ever going to go sailing again. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so weeks again, like I said, turn into turn into uh, over a month. He's out there and the solar stills, as he runs out of water, the solar stills aren't working all that great. Now he has three of them. First one doesn't work. He opens up the second one. It produces a little, but he ends up drinking it and it's salt water. And then he's sort of like, well, uh, I don't want to really open the last one. I'm going to sacrifice this first one and figure out how it works so that I can then fix or make better 
the other two that I have. And he was really lucky because he was smart enough and mechanical enough and, and sort of with it still. So he was able to do that. And he got these other two solar stills working because out there, sometimes it just will go weeks without rain. And the most frustrating part is that you can have rain squalls a mile away from you and just pass right by and dump thousands of gallons of rain. I saw it in the doldrums in the Indian Ocean when I broke my water pump and then had to survive just off of rainwater for the next 200 days. I basically saw so many squalls and I tried to chase them down with the boat, but no avail. And it's one of the most heartbreaking things to to be thirsty and have to ration your water and see a big, huge rainstorm pass right next to you without a single drop hitting your boat. Absolutely heart-wrenching. But he stays with it, and he, he keeps going. He starts using the spear gun for fishing. The life raft is holding up pretty good, but you can imagine it's pretty miserable in there. It moves up and down, bobs up and down with the, the wind and waves. It's not very comfortable to lay down in. It's usually pretty wet. The, when he lays down, his head is up against the wall, and when a wave hits, the, the rubber closes around his hair and pulls his hair out, so it's really hard to sleep. There's all these little things that happen that are just sound so annoying. Meanwhile, either sharks or fish or whatever is bumping him in the night from the raft, uh, but he is able to catch a few of these fish. He spears them, and after he's done this quite a bit, he's got like a butcher shop where he's got all this hanging fish meat, and he's, he's sort of trying to create his own little world out there. He's doing yoga. He's trying to have some semblance of a routine, which when you are down and out and things are really, really tough, a routine can be one of the most grounding things that you can do. You get that going, and no matter how tough things are, you know, okay, I still have to do this, 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 and this, and that helps you break up your day because, I mean, he's just sitting in a life raft all day, and then night comes, and he's got these terrors of these fish or these sharks trying to bump at him. The stress levels are just off the charts here, off the charts. Meanwhile, as time goes on, he starts to lose more and more weight. You know, you got to imagine he's getting boils from the sun. He's always laying down. So he's getting like just rashes and he's wet and he's salty. And all those things that you usually do when you clean yourself aren't happening. So it's getting super gross. Plus the life raft is starting to get wear and tear. And on one occasion, he's spearfishing and he gets a big Dorado and boom, hits it, and this thing whirls around, and boom, psh, it pops one of the tubes. Now, this life raft has two main tubes that are in kind of an octagon, one on top of the other, and it popped the bottom one. So now, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, whoa, we're, we're sinking again. Holy cow, I can't believe this. this is happening again. And he's able to, with pretty ingenious uh, thinking and drive, He's able to use a whole bunch of stuff to be able to mend it just enough so that it'll be airtight while he's in the water. And he's able to, by pumping it up regularly, keep the life raft afloat. Now, more and more fish are coming, and day in, day out, it's just drifting and drifting. And he devises his own little sextant so he can sort of figure out where he is. And one month turns into two months. So he's out there 60 days. Every once in a while, he still sees a ship and he still has flares and he fires them and nothing happens. And then around the 70th day or so, there's the, the life raft is disintegrating to the point where there's like openings all over it. And these fish that have been with him in this school for almost the whole time are now, and this may be part hallucination, part storytelling i'm not really sure but eventually these fish become so so used to his presence even though he's taking them out every once in a while and eating them he was able to like pet these things and eventually he's able to reach down grab them and pull them in as if they're offering themselves to him it's a wild part of the book and i highly recommend checking it out in any event on the 75th day that night, he spots a small glow on the horizon. And at first, he thinks, oh, man, it's a ship. It's got to be a ship. Holy cow. Okay, get the last. He's got like one flare left. Get my last flare. Here we go. And then he realizes that's not moving. 
holy cow, it, could that be, that is land. And he sees land off in the distance, just the glow of the lights at first. And the next day, as he's getting closer and closer to land, he can actually see it. And it's unbelievable, but, you know, he's still just floating out there. And chances are the currents are going to wrap in between the islands of the Caribbean and could just spit him right out. And this guy's like on his last leg, literally on his last leg. And one of the things that happens out at sea, whenever there's schooling fish, you're also bound to find birds in the sky. And when I was living in the Caribbean, working at the Bitter End Yacht Club, loving life, we used to do these fishing trips, and all the locals used to say, all we do is we go out and we look for the birds. Where we see the birds, we know the fish are, and that's where we go. So he's out there, and he's probably 10 miles or so offshore, off of the island of Guadalupe, about midway down the Caribbean. And he ends up, uh, he's got this big, all the seabirds are there. They see all these fish, and they're like, what? So they're all hanging out right above him. A few miles away, unbeknownst to him, there's a bunch of fishing boats. And these are just local fishermen. They're in these, like, 20-foot little little power boats. And so they see these birds, and they're like, woo, here we go. Motor over there, and what do they find? Completely sun-blistered, burnt-up life raft. Doesn't even resemble the orange rescue colors it used to have. This withered little man, long, scraggly hair, bleached out from the sun, Ah, oh, the, the the imagining it. Uh, I I could only say Tom Hanks at the end of Castaway, but really that doesn't do it any justice to what this guy must have looked like. And these locals are like, what? They grab him, they put him in the boat, and and Stephen actually was like, hey, you know, don't uh, don't wreck your fishing day, guys. We can stay out here and fish. We don't don't be in a hurry. And they're looking at him like. Dude, uh, I don't know if you can see yourself, but we got to get you to a hospital like stat. And uh, so they end up taking him in. And long story short, he survives this ordeal. At total, he was out for 76 days, which I think is like the third most days recorded in a life raft ever. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And to imagine that is, uh, it's just... I it like I said it's the scariest thing because I I get a little spooked when like whales or even a huge pot of dolphins are around cuz I'll be down in my bunk sometimes and I can hear them squeaking or the whales calling and it's sort of like whoa huh all right we got animals around but old sparrow is pretty pretty stout and I feel pretty safe I mean I've had 40 foot whales swimming right next to me didn't feel so safe then but made it through I know Sparrow could put up a fight. Uh, essentially, a uh, a pool raft is underneath you. Uh, you are so vulnerable to all of these animals that essentially swim around in the ocean looking for food. I couldn't even imagine it. My hat's off to Stephen Callahan. His book, uh, Adrift, is absolutely amazing. He, he tells it very well, and he's a great writer, um, super adventurous guy. And he actually ended up uh, getting back, back to the States, and he started working on making better life rafts. So good on him. He gave great potential, or he gave, uh, he's probably saved many a life ever since then just from the lessons he learned while he was out at sea. So Really, really cool story. Again, the book is Adrift, and uh, you definitely want to check it out. So that's the sailing story for today. I'm Jerome Rand. Thanks for uh, watching, and uh, more stories to come.